Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wandry people. I pay my respects to the elders past and present um, and extend that to you if you're a First Nations person listening today. I acknowledge the ongoing effects of colonisation, um, some of which we will cover I believe in today's show, um, and I acknowledge that a treaty is yet to be signed. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by multi-award winning author Ronnie Gorey, who just took out the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for both Indigenous writing um, and the big one, the Victorian Prize for Literature. Uh, That was late last week. So it's such a a great honour to have her on the show today to speak about her memoir called Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience. Uh, It's a book that spans her early life and also her entry into the Queensland Police Force um, and what that experience was like for her. And later on in the show, I'll be joined by the CEO and Creative Director of the Australian International Documentary Conference, Natasha Gad, to speak about their upcoming conference. Um, it is their big annual event for non-fiction screen and digital media industries that's right, you are listening to Triple Arts. My name is Beth and it's a pleasure to have your company. Just a content warning for this next interview that we may touch on themes of colonial violence and gendered violence. Ronnie Gorey grew up in a small country town of Morwell with her mother, father, two brothers and sisters. And throughout her childhood, she moved around a bit and mostly lived with her father. And after finishing school, Ronnie decided to enter the Queensland Police Force, uh, where she would go to work for a decade. As a female Aboriginal police officer, she was subjected to relentless racism from within the police force and an experience that has profoundly shaped her life. Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience, is by proud Gunai Kurnai woman Ronnie Gori. Uh, it has just taken home the biggest literary award in the country at the VPLAs last week, um, winning both the award for Best Indigenous Writing um, and the Big One, the award for literature, so well deserved. Ronnie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for having me, Beth. Um, huge congratulations on all your success with this book. It is, it's honestly a yeah, deep honour to chat with you. Um, Ronnie, you began writing this book as a way to document your memories um, after being diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety and depression from your time spent in the police force. When you first started writing, did you know that you wanted to turn these experiences into a book? No, not at the time. So initially I was just documenting what memories I did have, but um, towards, um, or before too long, I just realised I had enough worth, uh, yeah, books worth of memories. Mm. And, you know, obviously you kind of, you speak about this, memory loss is a part of, um, you know, your experience with PTSD from your time as a police officer. Do you think, I suppose, through the writing of this book, it changed your relationship with some of these memories and experiences by being able to document them? 
Um, I don't. I'm not sure how to answer that, but I just know that um, I still suffer from memory loss, um, and it's you know it's frustrating at times, and you know a lot of times actually, and I rely heavily on my children. They're, mm. they're the keepers of my memory. Mm. And this book is dedicated to your three children. Um, I'm interested, you know, did you have them in mind when you were writing or has that kind of changed the way that you wrote the book with having your children in mind? Yeah, I was um, pretty sensitive in the way I wrote it Um, and not just for my children but for my people, you know, because a lot of my pen resonate with what I've written. Um, But my children, like, they've already heard all these stories so there was nothing new that was being introduced Um, and I think what the... Listeners need to know that um, as much as it's my story, it's their story as well. Yeah. And, Ronnie, you know, family is a big part of your life. It has been for, you know, ever since you were young. You know, you really detail your life as a young person, growing up with your family. Can you, I suppose, tell us a little bit about your childhood and and what that was like? Oh, look, I grew up with a lot of violence, Um, you you know, a lot of alcohol and violence. And, like, I grew up and I associated alcohol with violence all my life. Mm. Um, you know, so much so that when I had my children, then, yeah, it's in the book, but I had a code word if there was, you know, if I needed to leave quickly. Um, and sometimes it was watermelon. Mm. And if they heard me say that, then we'd to exit that place. But, um, yeah, we always, I always had an exit strategy and it's, you know, on edge all the time, but you know, that's what trauma does to you. Mm. But not just family violence. I mean, my people have gone through um, the violence of colonisation as a direct result of um, the settlers. Um, with stolen generation, the loss of our land, the loss of our language, dispossession, um, the rape and tortures of our women and our children. And, you know, my grandmother was stolen when she was eight years old, and I, I carry her traumas to, uh, still to this day. Mm. And... Um your grandmother also went through an incredibly hard time where your father was taken away um, as soon as he was born. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and, yeah, how that's impacted you? Oh, it's deeply impacted me, but not just me. Um, you know, it's handed down from generation to generation. Mm. So my grandmother gave birth to him and soon after they, they stole my, grand, uh, my father off her. And then they um, unlawfully and... You know, without her permission or knowledge, they sterilised her, so she was never able to have any more children. Mm. I mean, this is the, this is what the state government was doing to my grandmother back in the day. And that, like, if you can look at it from like in the past, what the government has done to the in the past to my people, they're still committing offences against my people, not just to my people, just to um, you know, in recent times, the government has announced, um, you know, not looking after the trans kids in, you know, religious mm. schools and all that. You know, I just... I, I, and that, Actually, I want to talk about that. My heart is actually breaking for trans kids all over. Mm. Um, I just want them to know, any listeners out there, I want them to know that they are loved. Um, and if you can um, support them by showing up... Um, walk the talk, turn up today um, to protest to kill the bill in all states around this country. Um, I think in Brisbane at 6pm, Canberra 5.30pm, Perth 12.30, it's probably already getting too late for that. Melbourne 5pm at the State Library, turn up and support trans kids. Mm. Um, Sydney 1pm and Adelaide 5pm today. Mm. 
Thank you for sharing that. It is uh, incredibly heartbreaking and incredibly frustrating. Um, I, I can't agree with you more. You know, this kind of um, state-sanctioned violence that you're talking about is something that, you know, it's it's throughout your book. You know, you had encounters with the police quite early on in your life um, by, you know, something that I remember from reading in your book is, um, you know, your brother was racially profiled by some local police as they, they, you know, they assumed that he'd stolen a guitar just because he was in the local area and he had a guitar. You know, these... I'm interested in how those early experiences of encountering the police in that way uh, informed your decision to, you know, go on and, and later join the force. Well, it's, well, as a child, I grew up with um, police racially profiling my people, and not just that, but they were brutalising my people and killing my people. So my family, we've been, um, we've been affected by death in custody as well, mm-hmm. as is so many other Aboriginal families right across this nation. And even as of, like, this week, we've had a death in custody, unfortunately. Mm. You know, it's like, when are they going to stop killing us, um, is the question. Mm. You know, it's and it's all at the hands of police. Mm. And, Ronnie, can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, when you were a bit younger and, and deciding to become a police officer, what, what was that decision like for you? So growing up and witnessing my people being and my family directly being impacted by police and brutalised by police and, you know, assaulted whilst handcuffed by police, um, I wanted to join the police to um, eradicate the fears that my people, my community, um, the Aboriginal people have towards police. But soon after entering the police, I... I soon realised that these fears were well and truly justified because the fears and the, what, I witnessed, what I had witnessed as a child, I was still witnessing as an adult police officer, and that was within. And when I was a police officer, they treated me like shit. Mm. They were so racist towards me, and they bullied me on a day-to-day basis. I'd go to work, no one would speak to me. Um, they made my life very difficult, and I knew I wasn't wanted. Um, you know, and, you know, if they can treat their own like that, how the bloody hell are they going to treat my people, you know, my community? Mm. And that's something that you really talk about in the book is, I suppose, witnessing that, not even witnessing that violence, experiencing that violence and also witnessing it, you know, both personally and the way that other Aboriginal people were treated by the police. You know, as you said, you speak of incidents of racial profiling, of racist slurs, you know, intense police brutality, you know, these these kinds of attitudes, uh, as you've mentioned, feel so deeply rooted within the institution of policing itself. Can you tell me a few of the things that you witnessed um, other officers do to other people, other First Nations people? Yeah, so first of all, I just want the listeners to um, understand that police all over this country, possibly all over the world, are not used to working with people of colour, minority people, um, and especially Aboriginal people, they're only used to locking us up. So this is, I think that's where it stems from. It's systemic racism, it's rife, and it's uh, predominantly a white male dominant institution. Um, I, like, the, the things that I'd witnessed as a child, um, with family members being handcuffed and bashed, you know, assaulted by many coppers, up to three to four coppers at any one time, I'd witnessed um, I'd witnessed this as a police officer. I'd seen uh, a male person, an Aboriginal person, handcuffed and booted in the mouth, and I saw his teeth coming out of mm. his head. Um, and these... Sorry. No, it's OK. 
Yeah, sorry. And this is what I have to do with every day. And I'm sure the copper that did that, he doesn't have nightmares about this. Mm. Um, I put a complaint in as soon as I went back to the station and it went nowhere. Mm. And, I, you know, I wish, you know, I probably should have made more noise about it. Um, but that's how it was that, you know, the complaints aren't taken seriously, seriously, especially by female police officers and an Aboriginal female. Mm. But, Ronnie, you know, just from reading your book, you did so much um, as a police officer to keep other First Nations people safe. Um, you know, you often stepped in to follow cultural protocols in an attempt to, yeah, keep community members safe when other police officers just wouldn't do that. Do you think, I suppose, some of those times when you really did step in, do you think that that was ever respected or taken seriously by your other officers? No, they had no understanding of my culture um, and my, the cultural protocol of being Aboriginal and being, um, you know, I'm Gunai Kurnai, I'm from South East Victoria and I'm policing in, uh, you know, not my traditional land. Mm. So these protocols that I have to practice and they weren't used to it and I was told many times that I should have just been a police liaison officer, mm. an Aboriginal police liaison officer and not a um, whereby where they don't have arresting powers and they, they're just like community policing. Mm. Um, you know, like, I train just as hard as them, if not better. I work ten times more than the white cop because I had to and it's like this all over in every white institution all over this country today. Just know that you're... Aboriginal, the Aboriginal person that's working beside you is working 10 times harder than you just to justify their existence today. And, Ronnie, as the book goes on, you know, you really start to feel the effects of dealing with this horrendous uh, system that you're up against, you know, of the kind of ongoing consequences of the racism, sexism that you endured and also other Aboriginal people endured just as you witnessed, you know, you see your health deteriorate, you know, in the, there's a point in the book where you say that as an Aboriginal officer, you can, you kind of, you either conform to being one of them and allow yourself to be a part of the racist system and the racist ideologies about your own people, or you are in a constant battle defending yourself. Can you tell me a bit about the decision to finally step away from the police force and, and how, what that was like emotionally? Oh, towards the end, with my diagnosis of PTSD, anxiety and depression, so the mere sight of a police uniform would be just be a trigger for me mm. um, and I'd have panic attacks. Um, and even to this day, um, I've done a book launch in the past in Brisbane and I, the, the, being in Queensland sets off my triggers mm. and the whole time I was in Queensland, I... Well, especially Brisbane, I couldn't breathe for five days. Mm. I was having constant panic attacks. And um, it's a trigger. And, you know, never mind me. Um, what about the ones that are getting chased for no reason and dying in custody, the families that have lost their loved ones that have died in custody as a result of police abusing their powers and unnecessarily chasing my people and young ones? You know, young people in, in vehicles. when they The likelihood of them knowing who they are is very, very high and they could follow it up in the next shift or, you know, the next day. There's no need to chase. There's no need to, you know, just stop killing my people. 
yeah, Ronnie, you, your your views of the police have obviously dramatically shifted, you know, since those early days when you, you first joined. Um, from what I know, you're an abolitionist now. You know, as you've said, we're, we're still seeing Aboriginal deaths in custody at harrowing rates. What do you want people? What What do you want non-indigenous people to know, um, and I suppose really remember and keep front of mind when thinking about the way First Nations people are treated by police? I just think um, so. When well, not just for my people, but for everyone, um, when when you see someone in you know having conflict or they're in you know having problems or something, it's up to us as community mem- members to stand up and help. Um, don't turn a blind eye. I mean, I don't want people to be running around being vigilantes and putting themselves in harm's way. I don't mean that. I mean helping out, like, the community. You know, this is, my ancestors, long before colonisation, would have been doing this, and we lived in community settings and, you know, family families and all that. And, um, and even today, um, in my community, and I'll speak for my family, I won't speak for anyone, any other com- Aboriginal community, but when we have conflict or within the family or problems, the first responders are usually our families anyway, and I have no doubt that this would have been the way it was back in the day mm. prior to colonisation. Mm. Yeah, it, it just makes so much sense, having community accountability. Um, Ronnie, you know, this memoir is, uh, it's it's... You know, I feel so thankful to have read your experience and stories, and I know that so many people um, will obviously have already read or are going to read your book. You know, towards the end, you write about the fact that you know sharing these stories and your experiences has been really difficult. I'm interested, I suppose, what's the personal cost of of being seen and read and acknowledged um, at this at this level? Um, it's quite triggering. Like, it's like, I wouldn't say that writing the book has been um, a healing process um, to speak, but um, to speak of stuff, like, just before, you know, I got all upset at before because things are quite triggering um, mm. when I speak about it. But it's important that I speak up. Whilst I've got this platform, I need to speak up. I need to speak up for my people. I need to speak up about police brutality. I need to speak up about their misogynistic ways their homophobic ways in the police. Um, I need to speak up for the trans kids and what they're going through right now, and I will use this platform. Mm. And, Ronnie, you can you can absolutely see that. You know, I was uh, streaming the, the VPLAs last week and just seeing you get up and doing exactly that, using your platform to talk about these really important pertinent issues when, you know, you're celebrating your book. I did just want to... Um, quickly mention, you know, it was such a beautiful thing to witness when you did win your the big VPLA award and um, mm-hmm. your, I think yeah. your eldest, Nayuka, came up and you had a cuddle and there's just these beautiful pictures all across um, the internet. What what did that uh, that win feel like for you? Uh, it, I'm still in disbelief and to have Nayuka there was so special. I mean, we're, like, we're pretty much, you know, Partners in crime, anyway, so to speak. Um, you know, like, and had it not been for the situation and COVID um, and the high risk, I would have had all my family there, um, no doubt. But uh, we celebrate together. We, you know, we we celebrate all our achievements together, and it wasn't just my achievement. It's you know, I celebrate for all my people. Um, and if I can lead the way, you know, for every other Aboriginal person. Or, Tell your stories, speak up. Um, right now we're having a treaty commission and it's all about truth-telling. 
Well, right now it's the time to tell the truth. And I want people, especially, the, you know, non-Aboriginal people to know the effects of colonisation has had on my people. I absolutely urge anyone listening to go out and um, read a copy of this book. Um, Ronnie Gorey, it's such a, yeah, a deep honour to chat with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. See ya. Uh, it's Ronnie Gorey there. We were talking all about Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience. It is out now through Scribe. You're listening to Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. My name's Beth and you are listening to The Glass House. The Australian International Documentary Conference is an annual event celebrating the world of non-fiction screen and digital media and it's back again for 2022. Uh, There's screenings, industry panels, pitch sessions as well as a range of other events uh, and it's taking place online and in person this year, a bit of a hybrid festival uh, at ACME. Joining me to speak all about it is the CEO and Creative Director, uh, Natasha Gad. Natasha, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Beth. Uh, it's a pleasure. So, I mean, the last few years have been an interesting time for productions of any sort, but, you know, for factual and documentary content, there's obviously been uh, huge barriers to production in the last few years. Can you tell me, I suppose, what you've seen happening in the industry, um, yeah, over the last couple of years? Well, yeah, it definitely has been a really big challenge for film productions. But interestingly, documentary um, practitioners have still been able to kind of find new ways to navigate all of the challenges that sort of COVID has brought and all of the various kind of travel restrictions and border closures. And, um, you know, in many ways, I think drama had, or narrative production had a lot more um, difficulty in trying to keep productions going and, you know, had to shut down for long periods of time. But what we really saw with documentary and factual programming was that producers were able to kind of find new ways to continue to tell stories. So even if they were not able to travel themselves, being able to have remote crews um, on the ground in different locations that maybe weren't in a lockdown, for example. Mm. Uh, And we also just saw a lot of people sort of working with archive and, you know, a lot of sort of music docs um, in particular and historical documentaries that were continued to... um, that were able to continue. And, you know, it's really one of the reasons um, why our conference theme this year is bearing witness and it's sort of looking at the ways in which documentary filmmakers have continued to innovate innovate and adapt to be able to bring us, you know, stories during these really um, crazy couple of years. Mm. I, I really like that as a central theme for your programming. Can you tell me, I suppose, a little bit about um, what it looks like to program this kind of conference under the theme Bearing Witness? Well, we really wanted to think about, you know, the art and, or the act, the art and the impact of bearing witness, you know, recognising that when filmmakers are trying to capture a moment in time, you know, there is that, obviously that sort of pure moment of of whenever something has actually occurred and then the ripple effect that happens as, you know, a filmmaker might 
document it, but knowing that, you know, where they choose to frame, what's left out of that frame, how it's then edited together, all of the various input that you get from anyone who's got any kind of investment in the film. So, you know, editorial investment from broadcasters and funders and then obviously the audience that, that watches that end film and, and all of their own, um, you know, lived experience and biases that might come to the party in that. So really we were kind of thinking about that um, as kind of something to explore and then we really broke it down into sub-themes. So thinking about um, On the Record, which was a, a strand that really looks at investigative documentary mm. um, and, you know, journalistic-style documentary practice and truth to power. So, you know, over the years, documentary has always been, you know, great at this, but films for change, impact films, um, and, you know, holding those in power to account, mm-hmm. and moments in time, which is really celebrating those observational films that just kind of quietly observe um, moments unfolding before the camera, which sometimes look like are not as heavily constructed but definitely have their own um, sort of craft and, and you know, different strategies that are applied to actually make that feel like a seamlessly observed film. Mm. And documenting history, looking at, you know, those sort of great archival docs and then Future Visions, which is exploring kind of the innovation that we see in doc with maybe VR or AR, but also sort of sustainability and, and thinking about regeneration post, um, post-COVID. Mm. And Natasha, obviously the AIDC has its roots in, um, in film and, and um, that kind of documentary, but I, I think over the last couple of years I've always seen um, some audio sessions pop up, which I'm really excited about, and we cover audio documentary a lot on this show. I know that you have a session um, about the art of the audio documentary interview. You know, I feel like we're seeing filmmakers cross over to Dublin Audio and vice versa, and you're kind of seeing um, this, uh, yeah, gelling of um, industries in, in certain ways, particularly when people are working in factual content um, and documentary. I'm interested how you've seen audio storytelling um, shape the program over the last few years. Yeah, well, definitely it's had a really strong presence at AIDC over the last few years, and, you know, that's in recognition of the fact that I think um, audio documentaries, you know, in, I guess, our kind of space, we tend to call them that over podcasts. Mm. Um, But, you know, they're they're obviously interchangeable in some ways, but really thinking about those audio docs that are sort of, you know, thoroughly kind of researched, they might be character-driven, they might be be investigative, and they really unfold over time. And, And particularly some of those docs that really have had kind of incredible impact. So even if it might be sort of like overturning particular convictions or, um, you know, opening new investigations, something, you know, a doc like um, Teacher's Pet. Mm. And we really kind of recognise that. And so what we've been doing as well is working with a lot of, um, you know, audio doc commissioners in that area. So... Uh, Audible and Spotify and and bringing them to the market so there's more opportunities for filmmakers and and audio doc creators to actually try and pitch their projects to to greenlight new 
new pieces. Mm. But the, the session that we're really looking forward to at AIDC is called The Power of Conviction. And it's really looking at that part of the interview and investigative documentary audio docs. And so we'll be featuring Osman Faruqi, Mark Fennell, Ruby Jones and Camille Bianchi. So I think that's something that we're really looking forward to, to kind of look at that, that the sort of craft and technique about how you get those really great interviews that can kind of elevate those audio docs. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's incredibly exciting seeing um, big commissioners come on board to really uh, to really back a bunch of audio documentary projects. You know, definitely seeing that happen more and more over the last couple of years and definitely from some of the, the big names like you've mentioned. Uh, Natasha, another um, event that really stood out to me is one of the sessions um, that is called Documentary vs. Journalism and it's like looking at the intersection of inve- investigative journalism and documentary and the, and the constant negotiation there when you're making those kinds of works between truth and creativity and integrity and also the entertainment when, that you have to balance when creating within those forms. Can you tell me a bit about that and how you see that negotiation and perhaps how it's been changing recently? Yeah, this is a really interesting session. I'm really looking forward to it. And actually, we've managed to secure um, Sushmit Ghosh and Rintu Thomas, who are the directors of Writing with Fire. And uh, today, actually, we're just announced as Academy nominated mm. for um, their documentary. So we've got them on the panel as well as Academy shortlisted documentary maker Nanfu Wang, whose um, film In the Same Breath is also featuring, which sort of focused on... Um, the different approaches from China, the Chinese and US government of um, COVID coming out of um, Wuhan and she's a Chinese-American filmmaker. So we've got these really great investigative sort of documentary makers um, joined by Yaru Bomellum, who's a, a sort of director but also journalist and uh, director of Unseen Skies and looking at how you find that balance. You know, I think that journalists who are sort of bound by some of the tenets of journalism of, you know, fact-checking and, you know, making sure that the, that a lot of the storytelling is impartial and always having, you know, a right of reply and two sides to a story. Documentary makers are not necessarily bound by that sort of same level of um, journalistic rigour and can have a particular unique point of view and perspective and it might be biased and so, you know, there can be criticisms on both sides, but there's also recognition, I think, from journalists of the freedom that Doc can bring with that um, and perhaps more work that documentary makers can do with some of that um, that journalistic rigour. So I guess they'll all be sort of talking it out, maybe battling it out, but I'm really looking forward to that session. Uh, it sounds incredibly interesting. Uh, Natasha, I know there are also some screenings as part of the conference this year. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so we're partnering with ACME, who are our um, venue partner as well, and we're doing four screenings with them uh, over the Saturday the 5th and Sunday the 6th of March, and they are featuring uh, Q&As with some of our guests. So we have um, Under the Volcano, which is an incredible documentary by Gracie Otto, um, which looks at uh, the air studios um, and, you know, the sort of, heyday of this amazing recording studio that saw the likes of Sting and um, Elton John come through and sort of like this incredible archive doc featuring 
those musicians um, in the heyday and amazing archival footage of this studio that was built um, in the Caribbean, you know, under this volcano and sort of what happened to that place. Mm -hmm. Really striking, amazing documentary and also by a, a sort of team of young directors who have just managed to kind of, you know, navigate this complex world of um, global musicians and, and agents, but also music rights and, and archival film rights. So be really interesting to sort of hear how they navigated that one. Mm. Um, and, yes, also we've got Burning with Eva Orna and In the Same Breath, which is the film I was talking about before with Nanshu Wang um, of the Chinese-US approach to COVID and Ablaze, which is Tiriki Onus um, and his film that looks at some archival footage that his grandfather, late grandfather, made um, and who is suspected of being the first Indigenous Australian filmmaker. Mm. Some incredible um, sessions and, uh, yeah, just a bunch of amazing events that are on for the conference this year. I know that you're doing a bit of a hybrid uh, this year of online and in-person, which, I mean, must be exciting because I believe last year's was online. Can you talk me through a little bit about, I suppose, the logistics of programming at a hybrid festival? This means double the work, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's... it's um, Look, it is exactly what we need to be doing um, at this point in time to ensure that people, no matter where they are in the world and whether or not they can travel or whether they feel comfortable travelling and, and attending an event in person, can access AIDC either by, you know, joining us in Melbourne or by um, effectively joining us virtually through our online event platform. So we will have panellists both there in person and zoom in. We will have audience members who will be there in person and able to join all of the sort of networking events. We know that, you know, the sector has been really hard hit over the last couple of years and, you know, it can be isolating anyway, being, you know, especially independent documentary filmmakers. So there's definitely a desire to, to get the sort of community and industry back together and, um, and you know, create those networking opportunities. But then in this current climate, by having the online platform, it means that we can still have all of those world-class buyers and speakers. Mm. Um, I think we've got, you know, close to 100 buyers this year and they're coming from, obviously, international sales agents and distributors and um, international streamers like Netflix and um, Hulu and Amazon, as well as local players, Stan. And it also means that people anyway, can, can kind of join in stream sessions and, and still be part of it. Mm. I mean, it sounds uh, it sounds perfect. You've got something there for everybody. And, yeah, I just love that. I think a lot of festivals now are really embracing the, the hybrid model because it does mean it's great for people in person and, of course, anyone can join wherever they are uh, in the world. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for your time today and good luck with the conference. Pleasure. Thanks, Beth. Great to talk. Uh, we were just chatting there with Natasha Gadd, who is the CEO and Creative Director of the Australian International Documentary Conference. It is their annual event uh, celebrating the world of non-fiction screen and digital media. If you do want to find out more info, you can check out their website at aidc.com.au. You are listening to Triple Arts. Time for me to get on out of here. I do want to say big thanks to my guests today. Ronnie Gorey for joining me to speak about her memoir, Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience. 
Highly recommend it. And Natasha Gad there to chat all about the Australian International Documentary Conference. Have a great day. Keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 